You are so strong, you are so mighty, and you alone are worthy of our praises, Jesus. So I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for your kindness to us. And I thank you that we are gathered here together to praise and to worship you, Jesus. And now as we transition into a time of worshiping you through the preaching of your word, Lord, I pray that you would guide me, that you would speak through me, that it wouldn't be my words, but it would be your words for your people, Jesus. And even as I was preparing this week, Lord, you were speaking to me, you were challenging me, that this word has gone through me as it does every time that I preach, Lord, that it has affected me first so that I can preach your message, Jesus. So I pray that this would be a time of edifying, of encouragement, possibly of correction, Jesus, and of help, that we would be people who are be equipped to go out into the world and to share the gospel. And I pray for those who are here this morning that maybe don't yet have a relationship with you, Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would be working on their hearts, that you would be drawing them closer to you and closer to, to realizing who you are, Jesus, and the truth about your gospel. In your mighty and precious name, I pray these things. We, all God's people said... Amen. Well, I'm not sure about uh, how you guys are with your personality, but I'm not so much of an off-the-cuff type of person. I'm the type of person that, that likes to be prepared, that uh, things that come up kind of off the, the spur of the moment are a little bit difficult for me. But in order to plan ahead, I need to be able to know what's coming ahead. And I want to know what's happening in the future, and I want to know when it's going to happen, and I want to know all the details. Is there anyone else with me in that room that likes to know what's happening? Well, I really struggle with the unknown sometimes, right? And you guys probably do too. Not knowing what's going to happen, when it's going to happen. Uh, and for Kirsten and I, when we were really trying for our second child, uh, one of the hardest things about that waiting time was not knowing if or when it was going to happen. And during it, we felt like we had a promise from God that, yes, you're going to have another child, but we, we didn't know when it was going to be. And so we almost, we almost just had to release it over and over and over again. And I, part of me wished uh, God would have told me, and I even asked him this several times, can you just tell me when it's going to happen? Because if we, if we know the when, it sometimes makes the, the waiting easier, right? But uh, God had a purpose in that, and that was he grew my character and my faith and my hope during that time. As I relied on him and as I prayed with him, and through that, that struggle of impatience, yes, I... I had to have a little bit of character refined. But if God didn't allow me to go through that, I wouldn't have had the opportunity for growth. And so sometimes he doesn't tell us things when they're going to happen or even if they're going to happen for sure because we don't need to know. It's not actually helpful. God sometimes uses our circumstances to build into us, to strengthen us, to help us to grow. But because we have this fascination with the future, with what's going to happen, and it's not just people that are in churches, it's... It's people in general. We want to know what's going to happen in the future. So we turn to all sorts of things. We turn to almanacs if we're farmers to try and figure out what's going to happen over this next growing season. Or some people turn to horoscopes and they, they try, and, uh, try and use the stars and alignments and trying to figure out things. Or sometimes we turn to the Bible and we try and score, scour through the Bible and go, what's going to happen in the future? What's it going to look like? When's it going to happen? We try and look for all these clues that's going to happen. And we get, we get impatient, but Jesus, he was the, uh, the greatest prophet of all times. There was three kind of major roles of God's leaders in the Bible. Uh, one was a king, so they were, they were God's appointed person that led the people uh, from a governmental level, 
and they made sure that justice was done. They led the people, the government, what was happening. And then there were priests. Priests were people that interceded on behalf of God's people. They stood in between. They offered sacrifices to make people so that they were clean before God. And then there were prophets. Prophets were people that would tell of the future. They would either do it as a warning for what was going to come so that people would change their behavior before it was too late, or they would tell God that justice, or they would tell people on behalf of God that justice was coming no matter what they did because they had done wrong. And in our, our last couple of weeks, we've been going through the, the story of Jesus and his life, and we've been challenged by Jesus' teaching. We've been challenged to, to keep the mission that we have to be disciples who make disciples, to be followers of Jesus, who point other people to the truth of Jesus. And we've been challenged last week uh, not to become a stumbling block, not to cause other people who may come to faith in Jesus to be distracted, to do whatever it takes to remove as many barriers as possible, that we should never make it harder for someone to become a Christian than it already is. And so we're called to help people, not hinder them. And so throughout the book of Mark, uh, the writer Mark is pointing towards the coming kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is the time when God will fully rule earth the whole way he is meant to. That every single person, whether they believe in Jesus and follow him and love him or not, will bow their knee before him. And he will reign in all aspects of life. But so Jesus, as this greatest prophet in today's passage in Mark 13... He, gives, he does both jobs of the prophet. Of he, he warns of judgment that's coming, that's already uh, ordained. It's already too late. He warned that judgment is coming. And then the second is he's warning for something to happen in the future that hasn't yet happened, and it's not too late. So he's warning both these ways. And so he's speaking this message of the future. And this chapter, I just want to preface by saying is one of the, the most misinterpreted chapters probably in the entire Bible because it's talking about the future. And so people often, we want to know the future and we want to know all the details that we can know. And so because of that, sometimes we try and twist it and we try and get things out of it that it wasn't actually meant to say. And so in this passage, just as a, a framework for you, Jesus is actually referencing two completely different events. The first of which is... Uh, already in our past. It happened many, many years ago, and that was the second destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. We know from history that it was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, and I'll get a little bit more into that, but the largest portion of this passage is talking about that destruction that was coming. And then the second, the second thing that Jesus is talking about, which is still in the future, is Jesus' return. Jesus coming back to earth and to, to end this period of human history, this in-between time, when God's kingdom of heaven has come down to earth fully realized. And so I'll be reading out of Mark 13, 1 to 37. I would love it if you have a hard copy or an iBible uh, with you to turn there and to keep it open because I'll be going through here and going a little bit back and forth and I'd love you to be able to reference it along. I'll be reading out of the uh, NIV 2011. And he starts in verse 1 in thir chapter 13 of Mark. It says, As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones! What magnificent buildings! Do you see all these great buildings? replied Jesus. 
Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And then later, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, this was the, uh, a large hill that looked across, and you could see the temple because it was so big. It says, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to be, bef- about to be fulfilled? We'll just stop there for a second. So the disciples, they're awed by this temple, this beautiful, large structure. And for the visual people there, I found a, uh, a picture of the temple, which I should have wrote it down. This, this is actually a miniature scale model, one to the hundredth. And I don't remember the guy's name, but I'll give him credit if you ask me after what his name is that built this. But he, uh, he took it from uh, as best he could of description of, of the temple, and he built this model so that you could see. And it Uh, Just as in Jesus' day, the temple isn't even finished in this model yet. He's been building it for many years. His wife thinks he's a little crazy. But he's been building this temple. But this this temple was actually the second one that was built. Uh, the uh, The first had been built by Solomon, King David's son in the Old Testament. And this one was being rebuilt by Herod. And Herod was, uh, was the, the ruler that the, the Romans had instated, basically as king of Israel. He wasn't really a follower, but there was a, he, he would build things uh, that he would create because uh, he would tax the people heavily. And he wanted his name to last on for many, many, many years. And so since in Israel, the temple was a source and the center of their worship and their religious and political power, he said, well, I'm going to build the biggest and best temple you could ever imagine. And there was beautiful descriptions of this temple that it had sheets of of gold plates so that it would shine and it would be magnificent that you could see it everywhere. And some of the stones were so huge that it would take hundreds of people to lift them into place. And this, this, the disciples, when they saw this temple, they said, Jesus, look at this beautiful building. Isn't this so amazing? Look at this glorious temple that we have. And it was built with huge sums of money that Herod taxed the people heavily for. So the, the people sacrificed Forced to, they were forced to sacrifice money to build this temple. And the temple, as I said, was the center of their worship. It was the center of their nationalistic pride. And they, they were unique, the, the Jewish people, because they had the temple where they were supposed to worship God. And the original temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians. Uh, it had been destroyed as, a, as judgment for their disobedience. And the temple uh, during Jesus' time was far from complete. Uh, During this, it was probably around 32 AD. The temple wouldn't be completed until around 64 AD. And then it was destroyed in 70 AD. So it was only complete for six years before it was utterly destroyed. And so this beautiful temple just awed these disciples. These disciples just loved it. They thought it was great. But in verse 2, Jesus basically says to them, Take a second look at this temple. Do you see this temple? Look past all the glitzy exterior. Look past all of the the religiosity. And Jesus, we looked at this a few weeks ago. Jesus actually judged the temple already. In, In chapter 11, he judges it. He comes into the temple, and he starts flipping over tables, the money changers. And essentially, all of that is a prophetic show to show that this temple has lost its place. It has actually become a hindrance and a barrier to people coming to faith. 
He said it should be a house of prayer, not a place of pride. It shouldn't be a place of religious political power. It should be a place where people humbly come to follow God. And so Jesus has judged it. And in a few short days at this point, from this point, the religious leaders of the day that are at the center of this temple actually destroy Jesus. They actually kill and crucify Jesus. They make the Romans so that they would crucify him. So Jesus knows that there's something beyond just the glitzy exterior of this building. There's something. The people inside are rotten to the core. But in verse 3 to 4, this is quite a normal uh, thing that people would do. They ask, okay, so you just warned us this temple is going to get destroyed. When's it going to happen? And how will we know it's about to happen? What will be the signs? What's the timeline that we're looking at here? And what are the signs that we know this is coming? If we know something's coming, we want to know when, right? So Liberty, uh, Liberty's birthday is coming up in a month, and I'm not saying that so you guys buy her presents. She doesn't need any, but just give her a high five or something. But, uh, but she's been asking for almost 11 months now when her next birthday is. <laughs> and, so, and she wants to know, okay, when is it? And she doesn't quite have months and dates figured out, but she wants to know when. And then since she doesn't know, quite know, well, what, how will I know when it's almost going to be here? She's asking, when's it going to happen? What are the signs? And that's the same thing the disciples asked Jesus. They said, okay, the temple's going to be destroyed. When are we going to know? And what are the signs? And then Jesus goes on, uh, and he doesn't directly answer the question right away, but he does eventually. In verse 5, he says to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come claiming in my name, I am he, and will deceive many. And that I am he, they're saying that he's the, the Messiah has come. And in verse 7, it says, When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of the birth pains. So Jesus doesn't answer their when question, but he does start to give them some signs that when the temple is about to be destroyed... He says there's going to be earthquakes, there's going to be famines, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars, there's going to be deceptions, there's going to be false messiahs that come claiming that they are coming to save you. But he says that's all just the start. And if that's not enough, he gives some even more signs. He goes on in verse 9. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, in his first group, he gives some signs here. And before he goes on to give some more... He gives this really clear command. He says, be on your guard. To be on your guard means to be ready, to be prepared. Guards have to train in how to fight and how to defend themselves before they're ready. And so he says, be on your guard, be ready. This shouldn't take you unawares. And what is he saying that they need to be ready for? They need to be ready for everyone's favorite thing, suffering. He says, you're going to experience suffering and persecution. He says, persecution is coming. 
And so that's another sign. He's forewarning them. He says, be prepared. Don't be surprised when you suffer and when people dislike you, when people attack you, when people criticize you, when people get mad at you because you follow me. But he says, don't worry. It won't be without points. There's a reason that you'll be suffering. There's a reason why you'll be flogged and beaten and while you'll be brought before judges and rulers in the synagogue. And it's so that you can witness to them. It's so that you can tell them about the hope that is found in me alone. He says, you're suffering, you're persecution. It's the opportunity to share the message of Jesus with these people. And he says, you don't have to worry about what you're going to say. You don't, have to, you don't have to plan it all out. You don't have to memorize your order of things. He said, the Holy Spirit will teach you what to say to be his witness. And so he's saying that, uh, that their suffering, their persecution, their hardships... They'll be used by God. They'll be redeemed by God to share the message of hope. Now, I, I, I don't know every single person here well enough to say that this for sure, but I would say that by and large, most of us have not faced significant persecution. When we think of persecution, we think of somebody like making fun of us or something. Being like, oh, that guy, that girl, she's a Christian, she's a Bible thumper. They're just weird. And maybe we get people making rude comments. That's not, that's not the persecution that Jesus is talking about here. What Jesus is talking about is literally being beaten, being put into jail, being brought before uh, crowds of people who are yelling obscenities at you and saying that you're, you're against God, that you are against uh, Jehovah of the Bible. And that, that is true persecution. That your house gets stolen from you, your freedom gets taken away from you, you get threatened to be killed or silenced. That's not persecution. And so I would say most of, most of us have not faced that. There might be exceptions in this room. But we actually face the opposite side of persecution. We face apathy. We face temptation. We face too many pleasures. We face, we face abundance at times. And we face this long waiting. This, this what is almost could be long suffering. We face, we face complacency because of this stagnation, maybe apathy, maybe cynicism. Maybe we think, well, is God really that powerful? But both of these, whether it's outright persecution or whether it's just being dismissed and having to wait, both have the same antidote. It's to have patience and to hold on to faith in Jesus. It's to hold on, to wait, and to have faith in Jesus. So I want to ask you, what difficulty are you facing in your life right now? Maybe it's a sickness. Maybe it's this feeling of complacency. Maybe it's, maybe it's boredom. Maybe it's, maybe it's a trial. Whatever it is, maybe it's true persecution. Whatever it is, what do you need to get through this? You need to have patience and hold on to faith in Jesus. Now, patience is one of my least favorite words in the human language because I'm not very good at it. And I think that's one of the reasons why God allowed me to wait so long for my second child. Because he knows I'm impatient. So he forced me into a situation to help me become more patient. But we need to have faith and to have patience. So if that suffering and that persecution of being brought under trial wasn't enough, Jesus just adds a little bit more to it just to, just to help them a little bit more. In verse 12 it says, Brother will betray brother to death and father to his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to, get, to death. 
And in verse 13, everyone will hate you because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, how's this for an evangelistic strategy? Just let's all memorize these and go out on the street and say, okay, now do you want to follow Jesus? Everyone will hate you. Your family, your friends, they'll betray you to death. Come and follow Jesus. Is that like a good tagline? Does that work? That's usually not the preaching that that you hear when you're trying to convince someone to become a Christian, right? But that's what Jesus is saying. He says in verse 13, though, everyone will hate you because of me, but here's the joy and the hope. The one who stands firm to the end will be saved. You know, my friends, life is hard. And, And I don't mean to say just because we don't face persecution that life isn't hard. Life is very difficult. Everyone has their own hardships, their own sorrows, their own trials, their own difficulties. Life is hard. But those who remain to the end, faithful and growing and loving Jesus, will be saved. Those who don't give up, those who hold on and keep faith in Jesus, will be saved. And in verse, these verses, these two verses, they show a division of loyalties that's starting to happen. And the point of this is that Jesus can't just be a priority in your life. Jesus has to be your top priority. When you're challenged, when you have a family member that says, I don't know if if I can talk to you anymore because you're just a Jesus freak. You're just always talking about Jesus. I don't know if I can be around you anymore. Well, in that moment, you're, you're struck with this division of loyalty. Do you go, well, do I need to keep talking about Jesus? I want to maintain this relationship. Do I, is Jesus really my number one or is he one of my priorities? You know, when, when we're going through life is pretty easy or pretty good, Jesus can just be, he can just be there. He can just be something you add on your life. But if you're facing an opportunity where you're on life or death trial for your faith in Jesus, that's when you really have to decide, is Jesus my top priority? This, uh, there's a, a book called Jesus Freaks. And there's this, uh, this story in there about this, uh, this underground church in China that met in this house. And there was uh, the, a group of people, and they had to meet secretly. Uh, I think this was during the early 2000s, so it might have changed now. But back then, they were, the Chinese government was really trying to shut down uh, house churches. They were really trying to shut down. They had already shut down all the big churches, and so they had to meet underground, in houses, secretly, privately. And someone had betrayed this one church. And so uh, during one of their Bible study gatherings, the, the knock came on the door from the, the police, and the, uh, they brought out a gun and threw a Bible on the middle of the floor, and it said, anyone who spits on this Bible is, is free to walk away with their life. And so under, under gunpoint, these people, one at one, one on one, one at a time, shamedly put their head down, spit on the Bible very gently, and then walked away. In the end, there was this little girl, I think she was 10 or 11, that she knelt down, she took out her shirt, and she rubbed the spit off the Bible, and she said, I'm sorry what they did to you. I'm sorry, Jesus. I love you. Please forgive them. And they killed her. In that moment, she had to choose who's her number one priority. May we all have the faith of that child. May we not give up Jesus when it gets hard. May we stick to him. But what does it take to have that kind of faith and commitment? Because we could justify, we could say, well, you know, God will forgive me. You know, God understands that's a difficult circumstance. God understands it's hard for me. I want to keep this relationship, but 
God understands. Yes, he does. But he also wants to be our number one priority. He needs our whole heart. And so now Jesus moves on. In verse 14, he says, When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Mark has an aside there. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. Now this is the, the final sign Jesus gives about the impending destruction of the temple. And he references something, this, this abomination that causes desolation. Now there's lots of people that make lots of guesses about what it is. But there's no clear understanding. It's something that's overall lost to history. They don't know exactly what it is. But the way that Mark writes this as a let the reader understand, the first century uh, readers of this would have understood what it was. But, but they didn't pass it down to us because we don't need to know, to be honest. It's something happened, something was so clear that, that Jesus was warning them that when they see this sign, don't try and grab your stuff out of your house don't try and go back if you're in the field to go get somebody. Run away from Jerusalem. He says, run away from Judea. And we know, the thing we do know from history is in that 70 AD, the Romans came into uh, Israel to put down a rebellion. And they, they massacred the Jewish people. They put it down, put it down, put it down. And then they, when they got close to the temple, the Jewish people fought just as if they were throwing their lives away. They did everything they could to try and stop the Roman government. Even though they were already conquered, even though they were already lost, they did their best. And so the, the Romans felt like they had no choice but left to just utterly destroy the temple. And what Jesus was warning his followers here to do is he said, when the sign is coming, when you, when you can tell that the destruction is about to happen, where, the, where something is going to come, where the Romans are going to totally destroy it, don't stick around for it. Don't die for the sake of the temple because the temple doesn't matter. Run away and keep your life so that you can follow after me. There's a story uh, where Jesus is in Samaria with the, the woman at the well. She's not even, uh, she's not even named, but she asks about, uh, about when they would, the people would worship at the temple again. And he said, a time is coming when people won't worship the temple, but they will worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus, when he came... He was making it so that faith no longer centered around a place, but a person. Faith no longer centered around the temple, it, it centered around Jesus. And so he says, you can do that anywhere. But don't stick around to try and defend this, this symbol of nationalistic pride, because it's lost its purpose. It had totally lost what it was meant to do. He said, instead, you need to run away. Run away, get away from there. Because in the, uh, the way that judgment would work often in the Old Testament and even here in this part of the New Testament was that God would, would judge an entire place. So Sodom and Gomorrah is a great example where he just utterly destroyed it. And Abraham has this discussion with God. He says, well, what if, what if, there's, what if there's a whole bunch of righteous people there? Are you still going to destroy it? And God says, well, if, there's, if you can find a certain number of them, I don't remember exact number, but... Then, uh, then I won't destroy it. But Abraham keeps wheedling him down, wheedling him down, and he can't, he can't find that many righteous people. So God gives him the exemption that he can go get his, his, uh, his relative out of there and his family away. But God destroys the whole place. And that's the same thing that happened with Jerusalem. 
that God was basically wholesale judging the entire nation. But those who came in to faith in Jesus, they had the warning to get out. And I'm sure they would have been trying to tell people and warn other people, but whether or not they would have listened. And so we know from history that it was like that. But let's read, Jesus even warns how, how awful it would be. He says in verse 17, How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. That's because it would have been so hard for them to carry this child, to actually run away quickly. And he says in verse 18, Pray that this will not take place in winter, because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world uh, until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short these days, those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So right around 70 AD is when this happens. And he tells them to run away without hesitation. He doesn't want them to experience the fallout of the judgment that would take place on the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel, they trusted, uh, they trusted themselves that, and their religious leaders, and they thought that there's no way that God would allow the temple to get destroyed. There's no way. They, there's no way that their religious system could possibly be wrong or lost sight of the point of it. But they had so lost sight of God's love for them and for other people that they instead had this false pride. The temple was always meant to be this beacon of light, on this hill. It was meant to draw other nations to them. The nation of Israel wasn't just blessed so that they would be better than other people. They were actually blessed so that they would be a blessing to other people. They were meant to live in obedience to God in such a way that it would be a witness to other people. But we know from the history in the Old Testament that they never met up to that. They never actually lived in obedience. It was disobedience after disobedience, and God's judgment would come on them because of that. And so they were blessed so that they could be a blessing to all the other nations. But they trusted in their temple. They trusted in their sacrificial system that they thought they were better than other nations. And so a natural question out of that is, do we trust in ourselves, or do we trust in Jesus? Do we put our hope in, in man-made religion or relationship with Jesus? And do we recognize our own individual needs for grace and forgiveness? It, it, seems, it seems such an illogical thing that this would happen, but people that, that come to faith in God because they recognize that they are sinful and they are fallen and that they need God's help, sometimes we, we forget that desperation that drove us to God in the first place. We forget the desperation that we had, the hopelessness that we felt, before we came to faith in Jesus. And sometimes years can pass, and we start to think to ourselves, well, maybe I'm better than other people. Those other people, they're really bad, but God loves me, you know, because I follow him well. And that's exactly what happened to Israel, that they thought they're better than other nations. And so they trusted in themselves rather than in God's grace and forgiveness. And the... Uh, the, the, we know from history also, there's uh, the historian Josephus, just a quick description, that he said that this time was so terrible, 
And the, the reason that uh, it says that if God didn't cut it short, that it would have, they would have totally eradicated, that the, uh, the people in Israel actually, in, when the Romans were coming in in power, they actually joined these factions to try and V for power, to see who could get on the Romans' good side and maintain control and power. And so they would fight against these other factions of Jewish people. And they actually found out that more Jewish people killed other Jewish people than the Romans ever did when they came in. And that during that time that, uh, that people actually experienced cannibalism, they would kill uh, babies and kids and eat them up in, because they were so starved out. That atrocity after atrocity, they, they did this when the Romans were coming in. And as, as uh, Jesus said, that nothing would be as awful from the beginning of time until that time. Nothing had been as bad. So just imagine, if you can, how awful that is. And then thank God that it doesn't happen again. And so Jesus moves on in verse 23. He says, So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days, following that distress, the destruction of the temple, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. So once again, Jesus says, be on your guard. Be ready. Be prepared. Everything up to this point in the, uh, in the passage had been fulfilled. It's already been fulfilled. The temple was destroyed and Jesus' followers have been persecuted ever since. Those things have already happened. But in these verses, in 24 to 27, Jesus switches tense here. Now he's talking from our perspective of the future. He's talking about his second coming. The temple destruction has already happened. But he says in 24, but in those days following that distress. And then he goes on to describe what it will look like when he comes back. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then the, the beautiful promise. He'll send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. So Jesus will return with great power and great glory. It's a wonderful thing. And then he goes on in verse 28. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happen, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now, this is one of the reasons why this passage gets misinterpreted, because Jesus actually switches tenses again here. He actually goes back into what, for us, what has already happened. He switches back to the temple destruction, which was coming soon. He says in verse 30, this generation will not pass away. And that actually happened. The temple was destroyed less than 40 years later. And so the first 31 uh, answer... Uh, the, the answers to the disciples' first question of what, what are the signs that this will come? Or sorry, of their second question. What are the signs that this will come? Jesus just gave them 
all of the signs this will happen, of the two different events, the destruction of the temple and his coming back. But there were far more signs about the coming destruction of the temple. And so now he answers the first question in verse 32. He says this, But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So during his earthly ministry, even Jesus didn't know. Now there's a, there's a conundrum here, because it's, isn't God omnipotent? Jesus was God, he knew everything, he was omniscient, he knew all things. Well, this amazing thing happened. When Jesus came to earth, he actually limited himself. He was fully man and fully God at the same time. But he chose not to utilize the power of his divinity while he was on earth as a human being. So when we look at Jesus and he does these amazing miracles, we can actually look at him and say, that's possible for a man to do. Because Jesus didn't use his own power. Jesus, it says, uh, when he was a child, he grew in wisdom and in stature. How could God possibly grow in wisdom? He can't. But Jesus, as a young boy, learns as a young boy does. Because he didn't utilize his divinity. So when he does these amazing miracles, it's not in his power as Jesus. It's actually in his power as a man surrendered fully to God, the Holy Spirit working through him. So Jesus had to pray and ask God, will you do this? What is your will? Because he was living as a man. And so we can follow his example because he lived as a human being. And so he didn't, he didn't stop being God, but he stopped using his power as God. He limited himself intentionally while he was on the earth. And so when he says, nobody knows when that hour is, well, he does now, but he didn't when he was on earth. He chose to limit himself from that knowledge. And so he says, only the Father knows. The, holy, the angels don't know. He says that he didn't know when he was on the earth. And so don't we love that, that we don't know when he's coming back? We say he's coming back. When? I don't know. As soon, I hope. <laughs> yeah. But he's, he's he, uh, sorry, he, he gave lots of signs for when the dis- coming of the destruction of the temple was. He said, you'll know it's about to happen because of the abomination of desolation. But all he tells us about his return is what it will look like on the day. And so actually, Jesus doesn't give us any warning whatsoever of when it's going to come. So in these last few verses here, in 32, he actually switches now once again uh, to the future again. So just reading again in 32... But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on your guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge. It'd be nice to have servants, right? Anyways, he goes away, leaves his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. So once again, be on guard. Be on your guard. Be ready. 
Jesus warns us over and over and over again, be ready, be prepared. Don't fall asleep. Don't lose sight of what you're supposed to be doing. And the main question that Mark's readers were asking when he wrote this was a time when they were experiencing great persecution. So they wanted to answer the question, how does one live life in difficult times? How do we live when life is difficult? By being ready for Jesus to come back. Whenever that moment is, we all want to know the answer to the, the question of when is it going to be? But he gives us nothing. He doesn't give us signs. He doesn't give us warnings. He just says, nobody knows, so just be ready. And so he's, I don't know of anyone uh, who's living that thinks their life is perfect. There might be somebody who thinks their life is perfect, but I've never met them, and maybe you have, but this looks different and feels different for every single person here, what being ready is meant to be. He says that each one has been assigned tasks. We all have a special calling in our lives. We all have special gifts, abilities, relationships with people that we are called to be among. And we each have something that we're supposed to be doing. But through this, ta through this passage, Jesus wants us, he wants to inspire in us faith, endurance, and hope in the face of suffering or in the w face of waiting. So we'll... We don't understand why suffering happens, but we do know that God can redeem it. And we can take comfort that we serve a God who knows what it is to suffer. That he endured the pain of the cross because he loves us. He understands pain deeply. And through this passage, he warns us against two different extremes. The one is uh, getting caught up and distracted by end time excitement. Because this is uh, eschatological enthusiasts. How's that for a phrase? Eschatological enthusiasts. Those who are so excited about reading the Bible and trying to pour through and figure out the signs that the end time is coming. But Jesus actually doesn't give us signs. He says, no one will know. Most of the, uh, most of the way that, that uh, apocalyptic literature would work is there would be this huge metaphorical language. There would be this description of this battle. There would be warning about judgment. There would be this warning coming. And the, the whole bulk of this passage does not have that. Most of it is talking about the temple destruction. And then Jesus is just saying, I'm coming back. Be ready. And so the, the end comes without warning. There's no, it's, or sorry, let me go back. I forgot the other one. So eschatological enthusiasts, so we get caught up and distracted by end time excitement. And I'm not saying it's wrong to do this, but it's, it can be a distraction. If we spend too much time trying to pour through and trying to figure out the exact time Jesus is coming back, we're wasting our time. And it distracts us from Christ and from serving other people. And then the other extreme is to be nonchalant, unconcerned, inattentive, and skeptical. To be asleep and disinterested. To go, well, who knows when Jesus is coming back. I, I'll just go to church every once in a while and that's it. That's the other extreme. So the one is to be so focused on trying to figure out the exact date, time that Jesus comes back. And the other is who cares if he's coming back. And so, as I said already, the end comes without warning. There's no warning. So it's not possible to have an apocalyptic calculator out to try and figure out and go through the news and try and figure out all the signs. But there's a huge, there's a huge uh, genre of that. There's books that are sold. 
84 Reasons Jesus is Coming Back in 1984. People are interested in that because we want to know the future. We want to know when because it'll, we want to be able to plan it out. But Jesus doesn't tell us because we don't need to know. It's not actually helpful. And so Jesus uh, is not giving us any time for last second prep. He said we should always be on mission. We should always be ready. And so the two things that we know for certain about Jesus coming back is that it is coming, it's certain, and that it will occur someday. And the fancy term for this is that Jesus' return is imminent. It could be any moment. It could be in the middle of the next worship song. It could be in 10,000 years. None of us know except the Father and now Jesus that he's in heaven. No one knows. And if you ask him, he probably won't tell you. I can't tell you for sure he won't, but he probably won't. Because his disciples asked and he didn't tell them. And so we need, to, we need to be ready for him to come back. Jesus' return is imminent. Now there were uh, certain things in the Old Testament that we were told that needed to happen before Jesus came. The first time, and then comes back. Uh, the, the first is that Elijah was supposed to come back. He did, through John the Baptist. The Son of Man was to be suffered, or suffer and raised. He did suffer and he was raised from the dead. The temple was supposed to be destroyed. It was. Uh, the disciples must face persecution. They definitely did, and people still do for Jesus. And the gospel must be preached to all nations, which is ongoing. We even saw that in the Jesus film. The, the gospel is being preached. And then the last is that the seed, the seed of the church, the seed of the faith must grow to full ear and be harvested. That, that kernel, that seed has to be fully grown and harvested. None of us know when that's going to happen. Maybe it's ripe now. Maybe it's a, a matter of time. But we're in the waiting period. And so we're challenged, uh, we're challenged to be faithful while we're waiting. And so we're left with the choice of how we're going to spend our time waiting. Are we going to follow Jesus obediently every single day? Or are we going to wait until it, uh, the end, when it's closer to the end? And for those who are already Christians, then the challenge is to live faithfully every single day as if Jesus was coming back tomorrow. And for those who don't yet know Jesus, the challenge is, if Jesus came back tomorrow, are you ready? Are you in a right relationship with your maker? If not, then get ready. Pray to him. Seek him. Look into your, the Bible, and you can find it online if you don't have one, and read about Jesus and be ready if he's coming back tomorrow. And so are you ready for Jesus' return? And the uh, question from this is, if you knew for sure that Jesus was coming back tomorrow, how would you live today? If you knew for sure he was coming back tomorrow, if you knew that tomorrow was the last day of your life on earth, how would you be spending your today? We should live with that kind of purpose and that kind of intentionality every single day because it might be tomorrow. That's the focus on Jesus coming back soon. So as the, uh, the worship team comes up to help us respond this morning, uh, I, I have three practical ways that we can act on this message this week. The first is to read. Read Mark 13 and ask Jesus to speak to you through it. And the second is uh, to ask, how should I live like Jesus is coming soon? Is there things that I should stop doing? Is there things that I should start doing? as if Jesus was coming soon. And the third is to invite. Bring a friend to Alpha and learn about who Jesus is. 
And so this morning, uh, as I said, we're doing things a little different. I'm experimenting with things. And so I've saved the, the time of what we call pastoral prayer, but corporate prayer till now. So we're going to do it uh, while we're uh, having music. And then I want to, uh, I want to open up the, the altars on the side for people. If you need to do business with Jesus this morning, there's nothing, there's nothing absolutely significant about doing it in this place other than that we are gathered and we are worshiping God together. You could do this at your home, but don't wait. If you have business to do with Jesus, the altars we're using for private reflection with God. So if you would like to reflect and to pray to God privately, feel free to come to the altars on either side. If you would like someone to pray with you, come up to the front here, and I'll pray with you. And if there's too many people, we'll have some other people come up and pray with you as well. But please join me in uh, a time of corporate prayer and then individual prayer and, uh, and worship together. God, you are so awesome and so mighty. You are powerful in majesty and in might. And your glory shines throughout the universe. And your majesty abounds. Our simple language even fails to capture how wonderful you are. Thank you for your love, your mercy, and your grace. And most of all, for your son, Jesus. For his presence with us. And for the hope that can be found in you alone. Help us to be faithful and to be busy doing the most important tasks that you have set before us. Most of all, being disciples who make disciples. We come before you, mighty God, asking forgiveness and cleansing for our lives. Our lives are rough and unfinished. Cleanse us, purify us, give us your gentle love, your pure peace, and your shining hope. Let the offering of our lives be beautiful and unhindered. Let our hearts be steadfast and sure as we face the future knowing that the future is yours and are held in your kind and loving hands. Lord, in our bulletin here, we have, we have physical, spiritual, and emotional needs, and those are just a few of the people here that need your help and your grace every single day. Lord, we recognize that so many around us are struggling with illnesses and hardships and recovering, Lord, or, or waiting for, for the unknown that's coming, Lord. May you help us. May your Holy Spirit move powerfully. May you heal us, Jesus. And may you be enough for us. You are our Father, our intimate and loving Father, who will never mistreat or abandon us. Help us to turn to you alone in our times of needs. And Jesus, we commit ourselves to you, and we fall into your loving arms and say, your will be done. And that isn't about giving up, but it's a willful surrender to say that you are Lord. We can't follow you unless we set aside our own wills so we say to you this morning that you are our God and we will follow you where you lead us. Thank you, Abba Father. Amen.